Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity entitled, Real World Experience in Diagnosing and Managing PNH in Special Patient Populations, is accredited by Rush University Medical Center and sponsored by the Academy for Continued Healthcare Learning. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Alexion Pharmaceuticals Incorporated and Apellis Pharmaceuticals Incorporated. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements as well as the learning objectives. Welcome to this activity, Real-World Experience in Diagnosing and Managing PNH in Special Patient Population. I'm Dr. Eileen Weitz. I'm a professor of clinical medicine at the Keck School of Medicine, the University of Southern California in Los Angeles. And I'm Dr. Jamil Shamo, professor of medicine and pathology at Rush Medical College in Chicago. And today we're going to be giving an overview on PNH in terms of prevalence, clinical manifestation, and pathophysiology. We're going to be discussing diagnosis and treatment of PNH within the context of patient cases and uh, take a brief look at ongoing clinical trials. So, Dr. Weitz, uh, what are some of the key points about PNH that clinicians need to know? Well, PNH is an extremely rare disorder. So, if clinicians haven't seen a case, they shouldn't be worried about that because it is extremely rare. It is an X-linked disorder in a sense, although the effect on the X chromosome takes place after birth. So it's not a congenital mutation. The problem with the mutation is the loss of function of the phosphatidyl inositol glycan complement class A gene, otherwise known as pig A. And the pig A gene codes for the GPI anchor, glycosylphosphatidyl inositol anchor, that acts like a little hook on the membrane of the cells. PNH is a true bone marrow disorder, so all of the cells that are generated from the bone marrow may have the PNH defect. If they don't have the GPI anchors, they lose the capacity to link proteins that modulate the effect of complement. And so the loss of the, of the complement regulators that are membrane-bound, such as CD55, CD59, can result in not only hemolysis, but also can affect uh, the platelets, lead to thrombosis, the white cells leading to inflammation. And chronic hemolysis is the most obvious manifestation of the disease and can be worsened by triggers such as surgery, trauma, infection, and other inflammatory conditions. We know that PNH, again, is very rare. The prevalence is somewhere between 1 and 16 cases per million maybe a little underdiagnosed because of the difficulty making the diagnosis, but it will never be a common disorder. It's slightly more common in women than men, but the manifestations can be the same in both sexes. Most patients present in their late 20s, early 30s to 40s, 
but you can see this in children and you can see this in older adults as well. Dr. Shamu, what are the symptoms that might lead a patient uh, to present to their physician and what are the characteristics of the patients with PNH? So the clinical picture of PNH is typically dominated by intravascular hemolysis uh, and what comes with that. So essentially hemolytic anemia uh, that is DAT negative. Uh, so this is the more classic form, right? Uh, where patients present with hemolysis, uh, their Coombs test is negative, they have dark urine, they have anemia, they may require transfusions, and this is in its most classical form. They may end up having this uh, binding of nitric oxide or nitric oxide chelation uh, that can cause uh, vasorestriction and gives the, sort of the classic PNH symptoms with abdominal pain, erectile dysfunction, uh, headaches, and uh, all of the above. So those are the paroxysms that have been described in its PNH, the paroxysm of nocturnal hemoglobin area classical form. Now, there is another way to uh, present with PNH, and that is sort of a more smoldering indolent bone marrow failure type situation where uh, the disease is dominated by cytopenias, and perhaps there's a smaller PNH clone, and, and perhaps hemolysis may be part of the clinical picture. I've also seen patients who present with um, iron deficiency anemia that had no other explanation. And only when uh, the patient was worked up for rare conditions or rare causes of iron deficiency was PNH identified. So um, I'm curious if you have any other uh, strange or unusual manifestations of uh, PNH that would prompt the physician to uh, think about this um, entity? Well, I think hemoglobinuria is probably the one uh, symptom that's frequently missed. It's just assumed to be related to infection or uh, some other cause of, of uh, bleeding from the urinary tract. Mm -hmm. And I had a patient also who had five cystoscopies. She was told that she must have a bladder cancer, but they never found it. Yeah, see? So that would, uh, would be an interesting piece to uh, keep in mind. So, and you know, there are registry data on clinical characteristics uh, of patients who have PNH, as many uh, physicians are aware of this uh, PNH registry, uh, which is simply an observational um, study on patients, a very large number of PNH patients in this particular analysis by Schriesenmeier. Um, uh, we looked at over 4,000 patients from the International PNH Registry, and we kind of wanted to look at uh, disease activity and understand the characteristics of um, PNH that was reported in this patient population and sort of associate that with the PNH clone size and also what is known as high disease activity. And what does that mean uh, when you're talking about clone size? And we looked at three different um, uh, compartments, if you will, relative to PNH clones. So in this analysis, um, below 10% was one compartment, 10 to 50% and above 50%. And then they were all evaluated according to uh, various parameters. So <clears throat> what was interesting, is that pretty much all patients 
had high disease activity. And that was defined as an LDH above 1.5, having a symptom of a PNH such as anemia or thrombotic events or abdominal pain, a higher LDH. And, um, um, and then you could see, obviously, I mean, in the slide, it's clear that the higher the PNH clone, the higher the percentage of patients that would be presenting with high disease activity. And the same thing actually repeats itself. So if you have a smaller clone size, your chances of having a bone marrow failure would be so much higher than those who would have a higher PNH clone size, over 50%, whereby your classical or hemolytic PNH would probably dominate. So that's not surprising. Um, similarly, if you looked at the percentage of patients who had major adverse vascular events or included in that thrombotic events, the higher the PNH clone size, the higher the likelihood that you would be developing thrombotic events or major adverse vascular events. But it's not to say that if your clone size is smaller, you're free from that. It can still happen. Clearly, symptoms uh, similarly can be also present with PNH clones. And, and as I've already alluded to it, the higher the PNH clone size, the higher the likelihood that you will have hemoglobinuria, uh, which is to me a very specific uh, PNH-related symptoms, as Dr. Weiss had mentioned. Um, and the list goes on and on. So, so if we look at a case, you could see um, this 45-year-old gentleman presented to an internal medicine specialist with fatigue, abdominal pain, and bone pain. And one of the interesting things about fatigue is that it is a universal symptom in PNH. Even with small clones, fatigue is a very important part of the disease symptomatology. During the visit, he also mentioned experiencing recurrent urinary tract infections. On further discussion, it was determined that the patient reported, uh, what he reported was episodes of dark urine particularly during a respiratory tract infection. His medical history was positive for superficial thrombophlebitis of the left basilic vein, and he had mild renal insufficiency with an EGFR of about 50. Uh, he also had a history of a chronic macrocytic anemia. He was previously diagnosed with anemia of chronic inflammation and received a course of steroids due to the hypothesis that his negative direct Coombs test, or DAT, anti-globulin uh, test, was um, a false negative, and, uh, that he, but he didn't respond to that, so not a typical treatment. Although steroids have been used without any controlled trials in PNH. So... What's typical about this presentation? The fact that he had hemoglobinuria, uh, the fact that he had abdominal pain, which we know from the South Korean registry is probably a marker for microvascular thrombosis. And he had fatigue. And I think all of that is pretty typical if you think about the disease. But um, there's no doubt that uh, because of the lack of, maybe because of the rarity of this entity and because of the fact that there's a lot of nonspecific symptoms, um, the diagnostic delay has been reported on. I mean, in the literature, 
you've seen papers that say anywhere from seven to 10 years. I've reported on the fact that nowadays it's maybe two to five years. Uh, so maybe we're, we're doing a little bit better. Uh, and again, it's because of the fact that we have diagnostic tests that would uh, allow us to think about this um, likelihood. It's just a matter of trying to think about it. In fact, in a recent, in a paper I published with a fellow of mine, uh, some patients ended up seeing five or six physicians before someone actually thought about PNH for that matter. Some were sent to psychiatrists before uh, someone even thought about this entity. And this was drawn from patient surveys. So um, how do you overcome some of those, those diagnostic challenges? Well, there's no question that making the diagnosis is infinitely easier and more reliable doing uh, flow cytometry with flare. Uh, part of the difficulty in making the diagnosis was we used to do a test called the HAMS test, which really describes the principle of sensitivity to complement, but is impossible to do. It takes one tech all day. It's not compatible with the modern laboratory and nobody's doing it anymore. And you could only look at red cells. You couldn't look at the white cell clones, which are much more stable and reliable. So we know that uh, in the modern era, we can make that diagnosis on a simple purple top tube. And we don't even need to make it on bone marrow. And um, so it's much easier the bigger issue is that the symptoms are very nonspecific. Granted, there's a very short differential for hemoglobinuria, but nevertheless, people don't even recognize that it's hemoglobinuria and not hematuria. They're much more likely to say that it's hematuria and go in that direction. And I guess the one way that we could um, figure that out is if someone were to bother looking at the urine analysis and determine that there are no intact red cells and yet there is hemoglobin in the urine sediment, right? Uh, on urine analysis, that would be extremely helpful because if you had hemoglobin in the urine yet no intact red cells, that's by definition hemoglobinuria. Exactly, so it's really pretty easy. Yes. But you have to think that way. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> If we get back to our patient, the laboratory testing revealed that the patient had enormousitic anemia with an increased RDW consistent with also the presence of increased reticulocytes in, that were measured and on the smear and concurrent iron deficiency with a ferritin of eight nanograms per ml. The LDH was three times the upper limit of normal. The, there was an increase in the unconjugated bilirubin, and we confirmed that the DAT was negative. Flow cytometry showed 39% clone size for the granulocytes, 42% clone size for the monocytes, and 34% clone size of the red blood cells. The patient was then diagnosed based on these findings with classical hemolytic PNH. Dr. Shamu, would you like to, to comment on the laboratory testing? So that's a sizable clone. I mean, 42% monocytes and 39% granulocytes, that's a, that's a respectable clone size. And then, of course, uh, not surprisingly, the red cell uh, 
clone size is smaller as it wouldn't be surprising. I would have expected it to be a little bit smaller as it would be typically the case because they are destroyed by the complement. So, uh, but they are 34%. Perhaps they were lower at some point. Maybe the patient was transfused or what have you, but, uh, and then of course, I'm not surprised to see iron deficiency with the ferritin of eight uh, and high LDH. That's all goes along with the, um, iron deficiency in the setting of intravascular hemolysis and um, um, hemoglobinuria and iron loss uh, through that. So um, I think it was interesting that the MCV was relatively normal, um, but the patient was iron deficient, which was probably masking the increase, the macrocytosis from the reticulocyte count. So that's why it was normochromic normocytic. Do you think that there would be uh, any credence to distinguishing the types uh, of PNH? And do you think that we ought to think about classifying those cases accordingly? Well, we know that these different types of PNH can morph from one type to the other type. We've had patients who have bone marrow failure syndromes, aplastic anemia, uh, possibly MDS, where they have tiny, small clones that increase in size, and then the patients develop classical hemolytic PNH. We also know that classical hemolytic PNH patients can develop or already have a component of bone marrow failure or bone marrow insufficiency, which is what leads them to develop more significant anemias, but they can have pancytopenia, even as part of their classical PNH presentation. They may have subclinical PNH. Uh, that's more common with aplastic anemia, but these do, these do overlap, and you can see one type morphing into the other type. Now that we have the diagnosis confirmed in this patient, Dr. Shamu, what treatment options are there for this patient? So we have uh, several treatment options. The very first one that was approved was aculizumab. Um, and then later on, uh, we have uh, another monoclonal antibody that was approved in 2018, built on the backbone of aculizumab, known as rabuluzumab that had a longer half-life, allowing for less frequent dosing, essentially every eight weeks versus every two weeks. And uh, in 2021, remarkably, we had a third drug, uh, which is a C3 blocker, pexidacoplan, uh, that was also approved for the treatment of PNH. So in a span of, what, 15 years, we managed to have three drugs approved for this very rare disease entity. So in 2006, Professor Hillman uh, published the Triumph uh, data uh, describing the uh, results of the phase three uh, double blind placebo control data evaluating the safety and efficacy of this drug compared to placebo in PNH patients and um, uh, discussing the primary endpoint, which was the stabilization of the hemoglobin level and reduction of transfusion in this patient population, which was the primary endpoint. 
So in that trial, patients were essentially randomized to either placebo or eglizumab, and they were followed uh, for up to 26 weeks, after which the placebo patients were allowed to cross over to the active arm. Um, and the drug, uh, the active drug, eglizumab, uh, demonstrated significant uh, stabilization of hemoglobin level, whereas 49% of those patients uh, basically had um, essentially improvement in hemoglobin and um, significant reduction in their transfusion uh, requirement, as well as improvement in their quality of life. Uh, there was, and since this is a blocking the terminal um, complement cascade, there's an increased risk of uh, in, uh, capsulated organisms, uh, including endaminococcal um, infections, and therefore vaccination was essential. And um, um, that was a must, and teaching patients, educating them on the risks of uh, all this was extremely important. So the most important um, uh, adverse events that were associated with this were headaches, uh, nasopharyngitis, upper respiratory infection, but in, in general, the drug was uh, very well tolerated. Ravelizumab is the um, uh, long-acting agent that has been studied in clinical trials and was compared to ekilizumab in two non-inferiority studies. The 301 and 302 studies compared uh, rabeluzumab to ekilizumab with um, both demonstrating uh, essentially that the rabeluzumab was uh, no different than the drug in terms of uh, primary endpoints in the treatment naive being uh, transfusion avoidance, as well as LDH normalization. And in the case of uh, treatment uh, experienced patients in the 302 trial, uh, clearly here you're looking at uh, LDH uh, change from baseline because clearly those patients were well controlled on ekilizumab prior to enrolling on the study. So, but what's interesting about the drug as um, um, not only in the fact that you can give it every eight weeks, is the uh, fact that it's also well tolerated. So the safety profile of rabeluzumab seems to be very similar uh, to ekilizumab. Uh, and what's interesting is to demonstrate in this uh, uh, drug is that the breakthrough rate seems to be relatively lower when compared with ekilizumab. And I realized that this was not necessarily a primary nor a secondary endpoint. This was sort of an exploratory uh, point that was investigated in the study. So I'll discuss this when we're talking about Texas Copeland and the um, uh, phase three trial, also known as the Pegasus trial, which was published by the same author who talked about ekilizumab only 15 years later. Um, and this was a phase three open label, nevertheless, but it compared Texas Copeland with ekilizumab. So the 16-week data were published in the New England Journal of Medicine demonstrating that the uh, texedacoplan, the novel agent, was superior to ekilizumab in terms of improving the hemoglobin level from baseline. And that, and that was actually the primary endpoint. And it was, statistically speaking, it was a superiority um, uh, uh, endpoint, or I should look looked into in a superiority standpoint, from a superiority standpoint, whereas in all other uh, secondary endpoint, it was a non-inferiority. And that Texeda Copeland was non-inferior to ekilizumab 
fatality for transfusion independence and in reduction in reticulocyte count, where it didn't um, seem to be non-inferior was in LDH reduction, as you would see <clears throat> in those graphs. And the drug was um, well tolerated, but you will see a different set of side effects in terms of um, having um, the list of side effects as you see here. So based on all the clinical trial data, how might the treating physician approach the management of the patient in the case that was presented, Dr. Weiss? Would you like to comment? Sure, well, this patient was vaccinated against Neisseria meningitides. And regardless of the type of treatment, whether it's ecolizumab or rabulizumab or pegcetacoplan, uh, the patients would need to receive this vaccine. If uh, patients on pegcetacoplan needed both pneumococcus and haemophilus vaccines as well. But in this case, the physician initiated ecolizumab treatment and then after six months, the LDH normalized, which was anticipated, but the hemoglobin remained at eight grams per deciliter. The bilirubin was elevated, the indirect bilirubin was elevated, and the reticulocyte count remained increased. Now the DAT was positive for C3D, indicating that there was uh, this most likely represented extravascular clearance by as a consequence of the C5 blockade. So some of the clinical considerations that lead to treatment selection uh, might be the patient's response. Would there be a difference between ecolizumab versus rabulizumab in terms of extravascular clearance? Probably not, because they both work the same way. Um, the side effect profile, uh, the side effect profile is relatively meager for, um, for ecolizumab and ravulizumab. Uh, the main important side effect is the risk of meningococcal infection, which would be present no matter what. Um, and, um, with pegcetacoplan, there's a different set of side effects, particularly because this is a self-injected drug, and it's given subcutaneously via a pump. And so a lot of the initial side effects were due to the patients learning how to give themselves the injection and how to manage the pump. And over time, those local reactions seem to have improved. So um, other things to think about, how well is the disease controlled? What's the quality of life in these patients? The risk of infections and the risks of thrombosis in this population. Dr. Shamu, your thoughts? It, it would require like a lot more evaluation to understand is there a breakthrough relative to um, the PNH, although the LDH seems to have normalized. Is this extravascular hemolysis? And as you know, the definition of extravascular hemolysis is varies, you know, there's really no exact definition as to what that means in the literature. Um, but it is concerning though that um, the hemoglobin is still eight. Uh, there are C3 deposits and uh, 
if this patient were to be in my clinic, I would probably like to see if I could enroll them on a clinical trial uh, to see if maybe we would um, turn around their anemia, uh, essentially. Well, I think that the patient was not transfusion dependent, but persistently anemic and symptomatic. They were tired and uh, they did have some symptoms of persistent um, and evidence of persistent hemolysis. The bilirubin was elevated. It was an indirect hyperbilirubinemia. The retics were high. And so the disease had sort of changed from being intravascular hemolysis to most likely extravascular clearance. And the LDH stayed normal, which is very typical for C3 clearance. It's very rare to see the LDH go up dramatically with extravascular clearance. So in that setting, the, pa the physician felt that the patient had extravascular clearance and might be a candidate for the peg plan which um, was now um, available. So uh, the patient, the physician initiated therapy with pegcetacoplan, and by eight weeks, the hemoglobin level normalized, and the patient was transfusion independent. Let's move on to a discussion of PNH in special patients. And to begin with, we'll talk about PNH in pregnancy. What do clinicians need to be aware of in these patients? Well, um, it's interesting because I had several young women in my practice and prior to having any treatment option for PNH, it would be almost unheard of to think about um, having these women get pregnant. In fact, many of them would tell me that they had been discouraged from becoming pregnant. Uh, and I, I understand that because pregnancy in by itself is considered a hypercoagulable state. So imagine having PNH and then becoming pregnant on top of that. And perhaps many of them, in fact, one in particular that comes to mind, wasn't even able to get pregnant. So um, it, it, it's difficult to even get pregnant in a state of active disease. So, uh, and those who do get pregnant, I mean, if you look at the literature, there have been multiple reports about the terrible outcome and the thrombotic events that women who got pregnant would get and the high morbidity and mortality. So it, it was very difficult. So uh, granted, pregnancy in by itself uh, increases the complement activation and uh, could augment intravascular hemolysis and the anemia. And women who don't have PNH become anemic towards the third trimester. Uh, so therefore, you can imagine hemolysis, transfusion requirement, thrombotic events, and uh, the third trimester thrombocytopenia could also get worse. So that wasn't something that uh, women uh, had. Uh, having said that, uh, I think this has changed now that we have uh, options for the treatment of this disease. So, um, but it's also possible that PNH is first diagnosed during pregnancy. So what should prompt suspicion of PNH in patients that weren't necessarily diagnosed with the disease prior to pregnancy, Dr. White? I think that PNH should be suspected in pregnant women who have unexplained anemia that's 
disproportionate to what you would expect from them. But more importantly, if it's coupled with thrombocytopenia, if they have evidence of hemolysis, and most importantly, if they have thrombosis, and that's especially cerebral thromboses or Bud Chiari syndrome. I had a patient referred to me that one of my fellows picked up. The patient was 27 weeks pregnant and presented with a cavernous sinus thrombosis. And my fellow was smart enough to look at her hemogram and realize that she was anemic and thrombocytopenic, sent a PNH flow, and sure enough, she had PNH. So those are the things that would make me suspect that a pregnant woman is, uh, might have PNH that had previously not been diagnosed. Of those that uh, were previously diagnosed, they do have a higher risk of complications, certainly untreated, and that's true for uh, developing preeclampsia or HELP syndrome, which can be very hard to diagnose and differentiate from the PNH crisis. Um, and if they have pregnancy-associated thrombocytopenia, which could be made worse by having the PNH. Let's take a look at a patient case that may illustrate some of the, the difficulties during pregnancy. Yes. So I had a 27-year-old woman who initially was diagnosed with um, a moderately severe aplastic anemia. Uh, she had, um, you know, workup for uh, hemoglobin of six, um, slightly macrocytic. Her platelet count was really low with 20,000. Her ANC was 800. Her bone marrow biopsy looked slightly hypocellular with erythroid hypoplasia. She had complete absence of megakaryocytes and reduction in myeloid precursors. She was tested for Fanconi and that came back negative for chromosomal breaks with DEB. Her cytogenetic testing was normal, which was good. Um, and she, none of her siblings were, were matched, so no uh, stem cell transplantation was done. Uh, and she was initially treated with ATG cyclosporine um, and responded beautifully. So uh, a few months after that, you know, everything was discontinued. So uh, the following year, she uh, developed a UTI, and then uh, soon thereafter, she was presented. She presented to the emergency room with severe uh, hemolytic crisis and um, with hemoglobinuria and went into renal failure at the time. Her LDH was as high as 4,000. And that's when PNH was suspected because it sort of happened on the uh, heels of um, a plastic uh, anemia and uh, a flow cytometry of the peripheral blood was sent. And uh, she basically had a diagnosis of a PNH with a very large uh, granulocyte uh, clone. So um, that was her initial presentation. And um, essentially, she was started on agilizumab for that, the treatment of the disease, and she didn't really require any transfusion. She basically had hemolysis here and there whenever she had an infection. She had a strep throat, and her hemoglobin dropped to six after that. But her hemoglobin was in the 10 to 11 gram range, and she just, life went on for her. She continued to have low-grade hemolysis, but uh, essentially was okay. Um, 
we repeated her PNH clone uh, size in 2013, and her clone uh, was 97% in the granular sites. And uh, <clears throat> then she wanted to get pregnant. And that's when uh, we decided to, um, and, and that's when she walked into my office actually and said that I am pregnant. So it wasn't like this was planned or anything else. And so uh, at this point, um, we decided to <laughs> send her to high-risk OB uh, and knowing the morbidity and mortality that's associated with being during pregnancy, what should we do with Dr. Weiss and what would you recommend at this point? We know that there isn't any clinical trial data and there will never be a clinical trial in pregnancy in PNH. Um, just too few patients and it's very hard to do clinical trials during pregnancy. We did do an, an analysis of the PNH registry and we ended up collecting 75 pregnancies in 61 women with PNH. Now, as we discussed earlier, there's a very high risk of maternal morbidity and fetal loss in these patients without any treatment. So it was really important to look at patients who were on treatment um, and see what the outcomes were in terms of safety and efficacy and uh, the and safety and efficacy in terms of the baby's development, et cetera. Um, the granulocyte clones were pretty large in these patients. Many of them had been on ecolizumab prior to becoming pregnant. And what you can see is that their hemoglobins actually did very well. Um, they were uh, able to maintain their hemoglobins. Uh, the platelet counts actually were pretty good and where they were able to maintain their platelet counts. Uh, their granulocyte clone size was very stable. Their LDHs actually um, continued to be relatively normal on the treatment and their neutrophils remained normal as well, both through the pregnancy, at delivery, and then postpartum. There was evidence of breakthrough hemolysis occurring primarily after week 20 when there's a dilutional effect. Uh, and so the dose of epiluzumab had to be increased or the frequency was increased. And that occurred in 54% of the pregnancies that progressed to delivery. Uh, the number of transfusions did increase slightly. Um, in the months prior to the delivery, but um, it really was not um, very significant. The vast majority of patients were on some form of anticoagulation with either low molecular weight heparin, full dose or prophylactic dosing. It was left to the investigator uh, to decide. And fondant paranux was used in one pregnancy. There were no thrombotic events observed during the pregnancies. And postpartum, there were two episodes of sepsis, probably really not related to the ecolizumab treatment. But there, was, there were two thrombotic complications that occurred. 
And those occurred in patients in whom the ecolizumab was stopped because they were only placed on the ECU for the pregnancy. Uh, there were premature deliveries in uh, some cases. Um, there was some preeclampsia noted. Um, there was really, um, the fetal growth retardation was, the fetus was below the 10th percentile. Um, and, um, but in terms of the developmental scores, uh, the patients, uh, the babies did very well. Most of them had a slightly prolonged stay because there were some preemies. And um, most of them made it to 37 weeks, which is pretty good. And uh, they all met their uh, developmental milestones without exception. So echolizumab appears to be safe in pregnancy. Um, and uh, we really haven't had any hesitation to use it. It originally was category C, which meant you have to talk to your patients about the risks. Um, and uh, that category designation has been removed. It has no pregnancy um, concern uh, uh, category. We don't have any data on rabulizumab, um, so that will be interesting. I'm sure at some point, some patient is going to get pregnant while on rabu, but we really don't have a lot of data, and there's no data on Pegsetacoplan at this time. There was a patient in the Faroa trial that became pregnant, but she was taken off the trial. So we don't, unfortunately, we don't have any data on these other therapies. Dr. Shamu, how would you have approached this patient? Well, so the patient um, would be treated with eculizumab, and I think I would have probably increased the doses as the weight of the patient increases, and I'd probably be guided by uh, the hemoglobin and uh, uh, hemolytic parameters as well. I'd probably be mindful of vitamin and mineral deficiencies and make sure that I address those to prevent further worsening of anemia. I'd definitely be putting the patient on prophylactic anticoagulation to prevent future thrombotic complications given the potential risk of um, uh, clots. Um, and then uh, involve high-risk OB to make sure that this uh, comes to um, uh, a happy ending towards the end, um, and and uh, essentially at some point, obviously, if the patient requires higher doses, to go back to lower doses and continue with anticoagulation six weeks postpartum. And a lot of the uh, my presentations ultimately were treated very similarly to what was recommended in Kelly's article, and I think uh, these uh, recommendations were. Um, very, very um, important um, guide, provided important guidelines in an area where actually we had none uh, for the treatment and care for patients like this. Yes, I think it's actually very interesting that the patient's hemoglobin actually improved on the higher dose, mm -hmm. which suggests that maybe she was having little episodes of pharmacologic breakthrough. Um, previous to that. 
So with the higher dose, she seemed to do better. Yes, and actually that was kind of an interesting observation. Higher doses of ekilizumab were um, completely addressed the residual anemia. All right, well, we'll move on to PNH in children and adolescents. Um, it's much less common than in adults. Um, of all the cases presented, about 5 to 10% are in adolescents. And it's estimated that the prevalence is 1.3 cases per million people per year. And uh, the prevalence of symptoms is slightly different than what we see in the adult population. Um, anemia is a very prominent feature, but fatigue is also. They may have thrombocytopenia. Abdominal pain is less common, but does occur, and leukopenia occurs as well. What differences in PNH between adults and children and adolescents do clinicians need to be aware of? So uh, I will uh, resort yet again to the PNH registry, and there was a retrospective analysis uh, comparing the uh, characteristics of the adult patients uh, with those of the pediatric population. Now, the PNH um, prevalence in the pediatric population is really, really very small. If it's a rare entity in the adults, it's even rarer in the pediatric group. So, but in that particular analysis, um, in the pediatric population, you'll find uh, more prevalence for uh, bone marrow failure states and certainly less incidence of thromboembolic events uh, than you would see uh, in the adult population. You'll find more um, classic hemolytic PNH in the adults, much less so in the um, uh, pediatric population. So as a whole, you can think of it as more prevalence for um, sort of the bone marrow failure phenotype, severe cytopenias, smaller PNH clones in the pediatric population, and more of the larger clones classical PNH uh, subtype thrombotic events in the adult uh, patient population. Um, and so with that, and now that we've examined some of the differences between the adult and the pediatrics, uh, let's talk about the patient case. Dr. Weitz? All right. So we have a 16-year-old female who presented to the emergency room with disabling headache and shortness of breath. Her medical history was negative except for some asthma during early childhood. She started receiving birth control pills three months prior to the presentation in the emergency department. Her physical exam showed that she was pale, she had scleral icterus, and she was tachycardic. Her brain CT revealed thrombosis of the transverse sinus, and the patient was anticoagulated with heparin. So what things should pediatricians think about in terms of identifying PNH patients in that population? Well, things that we should look for are whether or not they have increased dimers, um, their coagulation times and fibrinogen, whether they have evidence of severe anemia with evidence of an increase in the LDH, um, whether the platelets are normal or decreased, uh, and if the white cell count is decreased as well, 
presence of increased reticulocytes, negative Coombs test, and they need to do flow cytometry. And in this case, the flow cytometry revealed an 86% granulocyte clone, monocyte clone at 80%, and the red cell clone was only 36%, which was um, due to um, the active hemolysis that the patient was experiencing. So she was diagnosed with classical PNH. We have a classical PNH with the thrombotic event. So, uh, and a very large PNH clone, very high LDH, low hemoglobin. Uh, fortunately, the platelets are normal, which will allow for uh, full anticoagulation in this situation. And so, um, the hope is that there will be no residual uh, neurological effects from that. I mean, at least you didn't have to deal with a bone marrow failure situation whereby you couldn't even give uh, anticoagulation. At least in this sense, uh, the patient would be um, salvaged that way. Uh, so um, what so about- I guess, I guess the question is, how should we treat this patient now? Yes. So this is 2021. Uh, ravulizumab is approved for pediatric patients based on a phase three trial. So um, they uh, included both naive and ecoluzumab experienced patients. And um, they looked at the pharmacodynamics. The secondary endpoints included change in LDH from baseline, transfusion avoidance and breakthrough hemolysis and hemoglobin stabilization and the safety endpoints, including um, treatment-associated adverse events and severe adverse events. You can see that they actually did very well in terms of um, their uh, levels and um, in terms of the LDH improvement and um, also the stabilization of the hemoglobin. Um, was very good and very few transfusions. The uh, treating physician discussed the treatment options with the patients and her parents. The patient was vaccinated against Neisseria meningitides. Since she was 16, her spleen was mature, so she didn't really need to receive pneumococcal vaccination or Haemophilus influenza vaccine. In children under the age of five, you do want to give those additional vaccines because their spleens are not mature. Um, after four months, her LDH uh, was only um, 1.5 times the upper limit of normal. Her hemoglobin was, was 11.5. And although she did have two mild upper respiratory tract infections, the remainder of her symptoms were pretty mild. Dr. Shamu, do you want to talk about the treatment selection in this patient? I mean, I think it's obviously reasonable to begin with a long-acting C5 blocker because it's a younger individual and it's a drug that's approved. And every eight weeks, certainly beat every two-week treatment. And certainly if um, the patient has responded as well as has been described with the hemoglobin of 11.5, there would be no reason why uh, you wouldn't continue. Um, 
it's important to uh, kind of make sure that they are educated on risks of meningococcal infection and make sure that they are vaccinated appropriately and uh, that they're educated on what to seek medical attention and um, and obviously for the anticoagulation piece that they have to be um, counseled on a bleeding risk and things of that nature. And the only other question is what to do with clone size monitoring and how often and um, sort of um, seeing things about breakthrough um, hemolysis and monitoring for other um, potentially um, develop sort of like the uh, consequences of treating with C5 block blockers like the development of uh, extravascular hemolysis, which is a possibility perhaps with uh, prolonged treatment with C5 blockers. So that would be sort of the long-term uh, goal of uh, treating a patient like that. Though, again, I'm an adult hematologist. I don't deal with uh, pediatric uh, patients, but that would be, those would be my thoughts. Right, so this is a patient who you also want to counsel. She's on birth control pills, which may have contributed to her hypercoagulability. Um, and so she's going to need some other form of birth control. And um, those are things you'd have to counsel her on. Uh, but on treatment, her thrombotic risk should really decrease. So I've already discussed three treatment options that we have for uh, PNH patients that are currently available. And it is remarkable to see that we have a whole list of investigational therapies and clinical trials that are ongoing for the treatment of patients who have this entity. And um, you could think of them in various categories. So there's a whole slew of novel C5 blockers that uh, are being explored. Um, and um, there are also various um, alternate pathway blockers. There are a couple of factor D and factor B inhibitors that are also being explored either in, as single agents or as add-on therapy to C5 blockers. And I guess the benefit of those would be to see if you could um, put extravascular hemolysis under control. Um, and um, there are many other uh, very interesting smaller molecules uh, that uh, have different mechanisms of action, sort of uh, silencing RNAs, and um, th the list keeps going. Um, so in the future, we could keep looking for clinical trials that are looking to um, improve not only the intravascular hemolysis and the potential thrombotic complications that could arise from this, but also to ameliorate the anemia that could originate from the extravascular hemolysis uh, that could either come as a consequence of uncontrolled PNH or as a consequence of C5 blockade. Uh, so uh, just today, uh, there was a paper that was published in Blood uh, that discussed the uh, results of adding Danicopan to uh, Ecolizumab, uh, published by investigators from um, the UK. Uh, very interesting data, and I'm sure there will be a whole lot more coming from the American Society of Hematology meeting. So I personally look forward to more clinical trial results that will hopefully improve the outcome of patients that have this entity. Dr. White? I think that 
the most important takeaways uh, from our talk is that number one, we have multiple options to treat patients with PNH. And considering that it's really only been um, 15 years to get to this point, it's really quite remarkable. Um, and the drugs are amazingly safe with the exception of meningococcal infections. I think that the explosion of complement inhibitors is fantastic because it gives us the opportunity not just to have additional therapies, but to explore how the complement system works. And um, I think that that's really remarkable. We know that we've changed the lives of these patients in terms of their overall outcome, their overall survival is approaching, is the same as the normal healthy controls. And the fact that these patients can, women can become pregnant and deliver normal babies is really remarkable. So over the last 15 years, the change for these patients has been dramatic and welcomed. That concludes our discussion on real-world experience in diagnosing and managing PNH in special patient populations. Thank you to Dr. Shamu for joining me today. And please be sure to complete the post-test evaluation to receive your CME credits. This has been CME on ReachMD. This activity is accredited by Rush University Medical Center and sponsored by the Academy for Continued Healthcare Learning. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Alexion Pharmaceuticals Incorporated and Apellis Pharmaceuticals Incorporated. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash CME. Thank you.